Welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, and I'm left of center. And I'm Rich, and I tend to lean a little bit more to the right. But the bottom line is, is together we try to look for the balance of what it means to be human in today's world. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring part two of our interview with David Artman, author of Grace Saves All. Enjoy. David, what did you learn about yourself after writing this book? I think that I was, um, I learned that I was more afraid that there was still some fear running around inside of me that I wasn't. I was afraid. I, I, there was a part of me that was afraid to, to make God that good that, you know, like that I was afraid I would make God so good that maybe I might end up being disappointed. Um, but to but to take the, the the goodness of God to an ultimate height uh, scared me a little bit um, a little bit to start out with, and then I also realized that I was afraid more than I realized to to be to be outside of the status quo to mm -hmm. take a position that people might call heretical or that they might mm -hmm. misunderstand or they might call me a false teacher and that I, I didn't really realize the level of concern I had about that. I was, you know, just concerned about maybe like losing some relationships or people not liking uh, what I'd said. E and even though I'm in a church that allows people the freedom of opinion, you still have people that come into a church that would still be surprised to find out that I held a view like this. So I was a little afraid of how would I explain myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think what I did was I learned, I, I learned that I didn't want that fear. If, if I started asking myself the question, you know, what's preventing me from doing this? If, it, if all it was was fear, then I started to think, well, that's not a good reason. Just the fear alone mm -hmm. isn't a good reason. But I, I realized that maybe I was, still being driven by different kinds of fears more than I realized. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could tell me if you're a partial preterist. <laughs> well, I think, you know, the, the um, when um, I think that I went to a seminary, Bright Divinity School at a TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. And when we were looking at the Gospels and the book of Revelation, there was a strong emphasis on trying to place them within their historical context. And the near destruction of Jerusalem just looms really large in, in all of that. Yep. And that the book of Revelation was clearly set within the first century. It, 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 it's pretty clear there's five or six times, I think, that it, it's talking about these are things which must soon come to pass. Yeah. And so I saw that as the book of Revelation was an example of Christian apocalyptic that was written in the first century to help Christians who were dealing with severe persecution mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And that, that, that when Jesus said that the things that he was talking about would occur within the generation of those listening to him, and he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he's using apocalyptic kind of end of the world kind of language, that there was something that was, that Jesus saw that the end of the age was upon us. Yep. And he was trying to warn his followers and and he told them that when the armies came to surround Jerusalem, that they should head for the hills. Now that that 
that makes a lot of sense if what you're talking about is the destruction of Jerusalem. It makes no sense if you're talking about the destruction of the whole world. Yeah. What did destruction of Jerusalem mean to Jesus or to the apocryphal works? Sorry. Well, apocalypses, apocalyptic works. Well, apocalypses are historically the ways that oppressed communities have given voice to their oppression. So there's a lot of Jewish apocalypses that in the in the time immediately before Jesus that had to do with um, the Greek persecution Maccabees. of the Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just there's there's Jewish apocalyptic. There's there's a whole genre of apocalyptic literature in the ancient world. And if you're familiar with that genre and you come across the book of Revelation, you just go, oh, I'm reading an apocalypse. But if you don't know the genre of apocalyptic literature and you're not familiar with that, it, with how apocalyptic literature worked in the ancient Near Eastern world in Second Temple Judaism and during that time, then you have no idea what to do with the book of Revelation. So fortunately, I was just given a uh, a lot of context for that. And, and that preterism, uh, full preterism is the idea that everything that is, that's talked about in the New Testament was fulfilled in the fall of, of, of Jerusalem at 70. And then a partial preterism would be that all of it was, uh, not all of it was fulfilled, but a lot of it was fulfilled so that the return of Christ is still, is still yet to come. It. Yeah. Yeah. And so I say at that, at this point, I find that to be an interesting discussion. I don't feel a need to have a full resolution on that. It's kind of enough for me to say that it's pretty apparent to me that a lot of that end times language was about the end of the age. And yep. that gets back to this translating this word aeon. aeon. That mm -hmm. word aeon was sometimes translated world instead of in, in the Greek, it's the end of the age, but it get translated in English to end of the world which made it sound like the end of everything. Yeah. So, and, and what's interesting about partial or about preterism is that this is something that evangelicals discover because they, they're they like, we've mm. been told forever that the world is coming to an end. How come it doesn't come to an end? We've been given this interpretation of Revelation and some passages in Matthew's gospel about the end times, but it doesn't ever seem to happen. So what's going on? So what happens is, is the evangelicals started to, to discover a historical contextualization of apocalyptic literature and apocalyptic ideas that you find in the New Testament. And so that developed a move of preterism. Well, once you start doing that and you start finding out all of that, that can sometimes open the door to a Christian universalism because you start to realize that a lot of the judgment language that's in the New Testament really is explainable within its original historical context. So that's the, the preterism and partial preterism is a really interesting, is a really interesting discussion. Well, Rich I'm and I were talking to chat more with you about it later. I want I know, to know. Rich and I, we were talking about it last night as we were preparing. And I said, let's not geek out too hard. Because <laughs> we can go really, we can go theologically yeah. much more. Because well, okay. This is the conversation about God. It's It always wraps around to our image of God. It's all relevant because we want to try and figure out what that image looks like. Well, one of the things that happens too, you find this pattern in the, in the Bible too, is that sometimes there seems to be like some kind of like absolute condemnation that, that you see from like a Hebrew prophet or you see in it. 
like this is it, you know, this is the total end. But then later on, it gets reversed. So that's a pattern, too, that you have to sort of be aware of, that there can sort of seem to be absolute condemnations that get levied. But then later on, there's even restoration from absolute condemnation. So that's a kind of a big picture thing to think about. But then there's other things like, you know, because the sin against the Holy Spirit is the one that, that, that people can get really bothered by. That's what just, I was talking about. Yeah. yeah, but just get backed up a little bit. Like Matthew 10.33 says, but whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, well, Peter disowned him three times. He but did. then Peter gets re- restored. Um, and then, so what, to me, what I've started to do is uh, it's been helpful to just go in and kind of look at the Greek words and look at the verb tenses that's going on. And the verb in that verse translated as disown is arnesetai. And it occurs one times in the new, one time in the New Testament. Sometimes it's also translated as deny. The tense of this verb implies an ongoing action, which triggers an ongoing response. The concordant literal version does a good job capturing this ongoing sense. It reads, yet whoever should be disowning me in front of men, I will be disowning him in front of my father who is in the heavens. So once you get an idea like, oh, okay, this is mean, this is meaning as long as you're disowning me, as long as you're not with me, I can't be, I'm not going to be with you. Okay, well, but then once you are with me, I can be with you, which is sort of what we see happening. Um is what we see happening with Peter. And then there's this uh, warning that's found in Matthew 12, 30 through 32, which reads, whoever is not with me and whoever, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So that's a pretty tough, that's a pretty, that has, that has ship, that verse has shipwrecked a lot of people. It destroyed me. That, yeah. that verse destroyed me. I went to a three-month depression and it completely altered my life. So let me just, uh, let me just read what I wrote here. It said, notice Jesus' reference here to time as a series of ages. He speaks of this age and of the age to come. What Jesus is saying is that as long as we are denying the work of the Holy Spirit in any age, be it this age or any coming age, we cannot be forgiven, cannot be fully reconciled to God. The work of the Holy Spirit is so central that it must be received. Rejecting the Holy Spirit is not something that can ever be forgiven in the sense that it is a non-negotiable. One can't be fully reconciled to God while at the same time rejecting the Holy Spirit of God. A good illustration of this principle is found in Jesus' parable about an unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. In that parable, a merciful king forgives his servants incredibly enormous debt. Then the man, after having been forgiven this huge debt, turns around and refuses to forgive a tiny debt owed to him. The king, upon finding out about this, orders the debt of this merciless man to be unforgiven. The debt is so huge that the man has no way to pay it back. Consequently, the king sentences the man to be tortured until he paid back all he owed. In the mind of Jesus, unforgiveness breeds unforgiveness. Hmm. Rejection of the Holy Spirit breeds rejection both in this age and in the age to come. This doesn't mean that the rejection will last forever. 
It is, however, something which is very serious and which must be resolved before reconciliation can fully take place. Um, so I just think that the idea is that there's a reciprocity that we see like a reciprocity, and you can see like a reciprocity in, in the teaching of Jesus, like even in the, uh, you know, even when he, when he teaches us the Lord's Prayer, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Um, and then he gets to the part where forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And there's, there's a lot in the teaching of Jesus about don't, you know, don't want something for God that you are refusing to give mm -hmm. to others. And that there has to be this, this sense of full, of full reconciliation. And so uh, I think as long as we are in a mode where we are refusing, refusing something, refusing the Holy Spirit, speaking against the Holy Spirit, as long as we are in that state that we can't really, there, there can't be a forgiveness. There can't be a full reconciliation that happens. Play, that, so there can't be a full reconciliation with God absent a recognition of the Holy Spirit. But so I think that once the Steve, Holy Spirit- I want to jump off here real quick yeah. because that was what captured me. And what I realized over time is I chose to believe an idea that was false, but I chose to believe an idea. And right up into that point, I had this really intense experience of really feeling and hearing the, this presence of God. And after that, all I could hear was this impression of be still and know. That was it. That's all I could hear. And what I realized is God had time. God had infinite amount of time to wait till I would unlock the door from the inside. Right. And that's what had to happen. All of my suffering, it goes back to, we had a gentleman on here three weeks ago that talks about a lot of our own suffering is self-created. And we lock the door from the inside because we believe it so richly. I was hurt, so you must not love me kind of things. And yeah. God's like, so it changed because I thought it was, I did something and it was game over. Yeah. I could not do anything to change it. And that's not what the verse is saying. I don't think it is. Exactly. Well, I one, would agree that, it is, that it's well, not what it's saying. Exactly. Yeah. Well, one thing too that happened to me is a, a long during this period of time, our church got involved in some recovery ministry, and I got interested in recovery, spirituality, and uh, I saw a lot of overlap between healthy Christian spirituality and recovery spirituality. Yes. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that in recovery spirituality that, that people are encouraged to do is to have confidence in the God of their understanding. Mm -hmm. So, you know, don't wait for somebody to tell you a God that you can believe in find a God that you can believe in and start believing in that God. That's to, wow. and, and to help you with never your, heard that. well, yeah. to help you with your unmanageability. And this goes back yes. to Bill, Bill W who was the kind of the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was, yep. he was about to die from his alcoholism and he ran into a friend of his who'd been a former alcoholic and he'd gotten out of it sometime. And he asked his friend, how'd you get out of this? And he said, well, I found God. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't believe in God. And he said, well, you better find, um, you better find a God to believe in or you're going to die. And he said, well, and Bill W said, well, I just, I just can't believe in, in God. And he said, well, then believe in the God that you can believe in. Yeah. And he said, that was what allowed him to construct a God who he could believe in. So, 
so the, to move the story down, like, so years later, so we're, we're, we're working, we're doing this course on uh, recovery spirituality and this guy starts coming. And I had told him, he was very quiet when he first started coming. And I said, just want you to know that here at this church, that we're looking at everything through a Christian lens, but the God of your understanding here is through the Christian lens. But just so you can know kind of how this works, you finally have to come to your own view of who God is. But the God that I see through Christ yeah. is a perfect heavenly parent who will never forsake me, who will never abandon me, no matter how bad things get, and who will not only uh, ultimately be able to redeem me from anything, any trouble that I will have, but also everyone else. Now, that's the way that I have come to see it. Not everybody around here sees it the same way, but just so you know, uh, kind of the the permission that you have to think theologically here. And yeah, so he didn't. powerful thing. That, yeah, so he, that, yeah. Okay. So he didn't say much for like months after that. But then he came one time and he started talking, you know, and we were all shocked because we were just so used to him not saying anything. And so he started talking and, and uh, I think it was after the formal meeting we were visiting and he said, when I got down to the very bottom, said, I never thought of myself as a spiritual person, but I lost everything. And I was all by myself and I got down to the very bottom and I found that I was talking to somebody down there. And you're the first person that ever described to me the person that I was talking to when I was at the very bottom. Mm. Wow. And the thing that he wow. didn't, the thing that he didn't know was, is if that God of unconditional love, acceptance, and mercy, who was powerful enough to save him and to save everybody, he didn't know if that God was allowed in church or not. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so, and so when I told him that, yes, in fact, that this God is, it's, it's allowed here at First Christian Church, um, and, you know, you have the full freedom to believe uh, in this understanding of God that you're not alone in the history of the Christian tradition. There have been others who have believed this way as well. It's understandable if you didn't know about it because um, it fell out of favor in Western civilization for a long time, but it's being recovered now. And this is a valid way of being Christian. And that guy was so happy. He started coming to church. He was having a great time. His marriage, I mean, the sort of the classic story, his marriage came back together. His everything, you know, like everything turned, everything turned around for him once he was able to um, put all that together. And I'm just thinking, with, what a beautiful story to be allowed to happen if that kind of story could happen in more churches where somebody could say, is that kind of God allowed here? The God who is, who is competent and good enough to finally save everyone, is that God allowed in your church? And to be able to say, yes, that view of God is allowed in our church. Maybe not everybody has that view here, but certainly you're within the history of the Christian tradition to have this understanding of God. That's beautiful. That is ridiculously beautiful. Rich, what questions do you have? Because I know you had a lot, and I think maybe let's do this. Let's consider this idea of, We've set up a really good first half of keeping it very simple to understand. And I know there are probably a lot of other people that may want to dive into the deeper topics. What are those topics that we are haven't touched yet that we think would be relevant to our listeners to maybe dive into a little bit? 
Well, you know, what's funny is that last session was talking about that redeeming love of God who can't even be allowed at our church. And that's the person I was talking to at the lowest level. I mean, it's kind of hard to come back from that because we're, <laughs> I mean, that's like the pinnacle of, of it. That's it's, it's a joy filled conversation. It's, it's a, a feeling of reality. It's not pie in the sky. It's actually I think something. that's Pentecost. It, it, it is. Um, you know, I, I like to think a lot in practical terms, David. I I I I banned John Piper's Desiring God. I used to love monergism.com. I, you know, listened to Hank Hanegraaff, been down the um, you know, dispensational premillennialism is such a joke, you know, and I don't really want to go there that much. But in more practical terms, one of the things I was thinking about is, and I don't know if, if you're in this gang, gang this bandwagon, but you know. I'm thinking about certain things that the, in modern kind of Christian things that are kind of pulling us apart. And the big things are like, you know, evolution versus creation. Right. And what I started thinking about was the arguments of evolution versus creation in many ways are very similar to what you've tried to bring across in universalism. And if you look at like the first parts of Genesis, right? And I think you're probably on the same page with me. I'm not sure if you are. We know that C.S. Lewis believed in theistic evolution, what I'm trying to do with all this kind of process is, can we kind of bring people down these same kind of roads where at one point in time, if you believed in evolution, you were a heretic. And now we are seeing a movement where, you know, evolution and Christianity can kind of coexist. And I'm wondering if you're seeing kind of similar trajectories, whether it's, you know, original Adam or whether it's other kinds of constructs that can help us bring this conversation into the light, you know, mostly you're focusing on the character of God, right? And you're right. thinking about things like nature of evil. And it's like, well, you know what? God doesn't want to have evil anymore. He's going to win, right? So evil gets pushed aside, right? And these kinds of conflicts. And lastly, you know, Gregor- I don't know if it gets pushed aside. Well, I, I'm saying in that- I think it's, it, it's resolved. It is. It becomes, it's a resolvable issue. It yes. is. Yeah. So what I'm getting at is, can you think of ways in current, you know, circles that are being discussed that are similar that we can help move this discussion we can start talking about these things bringing them to the forefront in, in more dynamic ways and, and do you yeah. agree with me that um the whole evolution you know as a, as a former heretic now you can actually believe in these things and what does it take in order to kind of bring these things more to the front well i will just say that <laughs> this is this is funny i went to uh, the Forgotten Gospel Conference that Peter Hyatt had at the Denver Sanctuary Church. Um, I want to say that was in 2015 or 2016. But so I'm at this conference and it's uh, Robin Perry was there. Brad Jerzak was there. Thomas Talbot was there. Uh, William Paul Young was there. It wasn't just it wasn't just a. Uh, Christian universalists, it was also people that were kind of hopeful universalists too. So I'm at this, and and I've got this, uh, I'm a mainline Protestant background. So my sort of bias is that um, anyway, that like trying to take the book of Genesis literally makes as much sense as trying to take the book of Revelation literally uh, that you're dealing with genres, that you're dealing with ancient Near Eastern cultures. When I went when I went to seminary, mm-hmm. we talked about you know when you get to Book of Genesis, it's 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 pretty evident that there are multiple strands of tradition that are built into it. You, you've got in, in the first four chapters of, of Genesis, you've got two different creation accounts with different yeah. orders. 
so that the really the way to look at Genesis is to compare it to other creation accounts in its ancient Near Eastern context and to see what is interesting about how the Hebrew people are telling their creation story over as opposed to how other people are telling their creation stories. So, I mean, right there, I mean, I'm already a million miles away from concerns about trying to fit Genesis in some type of uh, modern scientific discussion about the age of the earth. So those issues were never, they were never really a part of my argument. I was never even really around people that were having, that were arguing about that kind of stuff because I was more on the liberal progressive side of things. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and as a matter of fact, my Christian universalism shows up as conservative with some of my (laughs) progressive Christian friends because I'm not pluralist. Okay. Ah. Because define that distinction for us. Okay. Like a, a true kind of, or like a pluralism would be, you know, what we need to do at this point is to say that all spiritual paths are equal. So it doesn't help if we're having interreligious dialogue for me to say, you know what, I can see your point of view, but the thing about my point of view is mine the one, mine's the one that's true, <laughs> yours, yours isn't. Yeah. Yet what we should say is that, that spiritual paths all kind of come out of different cultural contexts, and it's not helpful anymore to sort of claim superiority for one spiritual path over another one. So for people like on the, on the progressive side, they'll look at my Christian universalism and say, wow, I mean, you're, you're still using, you know, like you're talking about salvation and somehow deliverance from sin. And you're saying that, uh, that somehow this all has to happen through Jesus for everybody. And you're saying that somehow in the coming ages, like all the Buddhists, all the Muslims, all the Hindus, you know, that they're, uh, all the Jewish folks, everybody, we're all going to be happily, uh, bending the knee and, and thanking Jesus for saving us all. You know, that, that all sounds a little bit narrow uh, mm-hmm. to us. So my progressive Christian friends think that my Christian universalism is, is narrow to the point of being scandalous almost um, because, it, uh, because I'm saying that all salvation has to actually come through Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so... Uh, so I go to this. Uh, I go to this conference, and I guess I thought that when I got into Christian universalism, that I would probably be, be mostly around a lot of progressive Christians. So I go to this conference. It's full of evangelicals. Yeah, because they're all curious. Okay, the the That's minister. My home base. I grew up evangelical. They're okay, all so, curious. So Peter Hyatt comes out of an evangelical. A background. Thomas Talbot comes out of an evangelical background. Robin Perry comes out of an e- kind of an evangelical background. And like all the people at the conference were coming out of evangelical backgrounds. There's praise and worship music going on. Sure. Yeah. So I'm in a room full of evangelicals and they're all either Christian universalists or hopeful universalists. Yeah. And, and they're all um, like, if you listen to my podcast, and you just listen to me talk, I don't sound like an evangelical. I just, um, in, in the kind of the Christian community that I'm used to, people don't get real emotional when they talk about things. Mm-hmm. But here I was in this group of <laughs> these people, and they were all emotional about things, you know, and it was just like, I'm in an even, there was, it was even like a praise and worship, worship service. And I met this one guy there, and I was talking to him and I asked him about his journey towards Christian universalism. And he said, well, you know what? I believe that the earth is 6,000 years old. And I believe that after the millennium, 
that God will reconcile the entire creation. Wow. But so I've also, you know, there are also people who get really, who really don't like um, penal substitutionary atonement theory. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some people that it's actually through penal substitutionary atonement theory that they come to Christian universalism because they reach the conclusion that, okay, well, God will in Christ, Christ bear the, bore the full penalty for humanity. Therefore, all will eventually be reconciled right. back to God. Yeah. So I haven't wanted really to engage, you know, too much in arguments about atonement theory or uh, evolution or things like that. But w- what I will say is that I think at the bottom of a lot of those conversations is fear. And it's mm-hmm. fear that if I get my theology wrong, that I'm going to go to hell forever, or that I could be responsible to lead- leading right. somebody else to go to hell forever. That's the theological trauma of hell. Everybody in the evangelical church has that in the back of their mind. Everyone. Right. That's how we're taught. Right. So once you sit with that on your shoulder, I don't want to lead any because there's a verse about uh, if you lead the little ones on, you're 10 times worse. Like that's, that's the story. Right. Yeah. So you don't want to be responsible for somebody else's, you know, going off into hell. Yes. But once you be, once you begin to gain the confidence that the goodness of God is such that God intends to finally redeem all of God's children and restore the entire creation, once you sort of start to get that, then your fear of thinking about different ideas and different points of view starts to go away. Yep. And so, yes. and so then your mind can is actually freed up to begin to actually evaluate different things in different points of view. But as long as you're afraid that if you make a mistake on your theological position, that you're going to go to hell or lead somebody else to hell, you are going to be sort of operating with almost like a traumatized mind or a traumatized Exactly. Yeah. So default mode network too, Jonathan. Is this kind of the default mode network? Oh my gosh. So uh, David, we, st- I study neuroscience. Rich and I both study your neuroscience, just understand how the brain operates. And these are ideas that are planted in. You don't gain your prefrontal cortex, which is your primary operating system until you're about right. 11. And so most kids are taught these ideas before they have any rational thought to disagree with them. And they become sacrosanct and automatic because it's mother, father, teacher, preacher, and you're and you grow up with those concepts in the back of your mind going and it sits right here don't screw up or you may go to hell and right. it, it, it is it's yeah that's the theological trauma that i think a lot of people are now waking up to it's not just this is a theological idea this idea traumatizes people right and so and for me i don't think i was ever really you know like in my church experience, I was never traumatized. I was never told that in my church experience, once I got going, it was basically the idea that God is as loving as you believe God to be. So yeah. go on that journey and under, try to understand what that means. Yes. But even, even then, just because growing up, I had heard that evangelical turn or burn preaching, just having a glancing blow with it. Mm-hmm still made me, you know, at certain times kind of afraid that I could still hear those authoritative voices. Um, and 
So I can just imagine what it would be like for somebody who was truly formed in that at a, at a, at a neurological level. Yes, that was to, me. I was. And I okay. had amazing parents that helped me move away from that. But it's those things happened inside of the evangelical machine. And because there's this there, I grew up in a both. There was both layers. There was a layer of our church that was obscenely, obscenely um, loving. Discipleship was the center. And that's what made us 7,500 people. We were doing things that were amazing. But on top of that was the layer of this. What is the good news? Mm-hmm. Let's avoid hell. And wh- one of the things I want to touch on, I want to dovetail back into the book real quick, is you talked about the care, the person of Sally Yates for our listener, because I think this is the worst case scenario. Tell us a story about Sally Yates from your book. Yeah, well, uh, this was just, I was just in the book. I'm going through some of the problems that you can run into, you know, mm-hmm. if you take a non-universalist approach. So yeah. if I take a non-universalist approach, let's say I take a Calvinist approach, well, there are certain issues and problems I'm going to run into there that I'm going to have to deal with. But then I thought, okay, if I take an Arminian approach, there are problems that I'm going to run into there. And sometimes people really don't want to think about the problems mm-hmm. that it can cause. Yeah. But in a typical Arminian uh, scheme, uh, what you're told is something along the lines that children are exempt from the the punishment or the the consequence of eternal conscious torment until they reach the age of accountability. Mm -hmm. What that age of accountability is sort of varies from uh, church to church. But this woman, Sally Yates, she was in a church, I guess, where they they said it was something around like 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. And that she realized that her children were just not turning out well. I think she was a single parent, if I remember yeah. correctly. But her parents, her, I mean, her children were not turning out well. She was not being successful in order to turn them around. And so she was just thinking, if they reach the age of accountability um, and they're these little hellions and they die, then they are going to go to hell forever. So as a parent, the most loving thing that I can do for them is to end their earthly lives before they reach the age of accountability, thereby guaranteeing them eternal happiness and joy with God. And so what she did was she uh, put them in her car and like drove the car into a body of water and the car sunk. And I guess she got out, uh, but they all drowned. So I think that's how the story went. I heard that uh, story. Yeah, that so she drowned her. She so she ended up drowning her children before yeah. they reached the age of accountability. And you know, so there are stories like that. There, there are also stories. And her of, concern was she didn't want them to go to hell, right? Because if they reached the accountability, they would automatically give in their trajectory. And if she didn't they would be covered before the age of accountability. Right. So it's the twistedness of that. That That's what hell, the, it's a worst case scenario, but I think it's important to keep in mind that that's what's possible for people. It is possible. And I, you know, I know those, that there's stories of, you know, kids now today, you know, I think when I was growing up, 
I'm 61. I was born in 1961. Mm -hmm. um, when I was growing up, what you knew at 12 or 13 is a lot different than what kids know at 12 or 13 now. Yeah. And uh, so the idea, you know, that I'm going to, uh, I'm going to hit this certain mark. I don't know when it is, but at that point, if, if, if there is some kind of any on ongoing unholiness that's in my life, I'm going to hell forever. That, that just the amount of pressure that that puts on adolescence. Yes. Uh, I was just, uh, I like the, I was just, I'm, I'm just, uh, watching the, uh, movie version of a musical called Dear Evan Hansen. Mm -hmm. And it's about a suicide that takes place and a story about a suicide. There's a beautiful song, if you haven't ever heard it, that calls You Are Not Alone, that comes out of that, that comes out of that musical. But it's it's just, I think people could get almost suicidal getting to this, you know, going through adolescence is hard enough. On, and then adding on top of it, the pressure that that starting at age 12 or 13, if you get this wrong, you are going to hell. Yeah. Uh, forever. Yep. And then what that can do to people. Yeah. And and then you can live in this theological gray area where you're not quite sure you think you've done it, but you don't have the fruit. So you're wondering, and that's like purgatory. It's that's the trajectory. I think of a lot of my evangelical Christian friends. I, I think I grew up in the church and I'm very grateful for that theological education. I am grateful because here's the thing, going back to something you guys were talking about earlier is like when we have enough permission to talk about all the other potential ways to God, when I reconciled myself to Jesus, what it really came down to is Jesus was the best example of love. Like I like Buddha. And I think there's a lot to learn from uh, the other theological leaders, but Jesus that one focuses on love at, to a to an nth degree, and that's what attracted me. I think Jesus is the best example of what it means to be a human being, is someone who loves. The rest, these are all human beings. Everybody else in the categories, they're all human beings, and they may have discovered something really interesting. And they all center around love anyway, so which one loved the best? And I think Jesus is the best example. Yeah. If he the the what I what I think about that is that it was never Jesus I really had trouble with. It was his father. <laughs> yes. And yeah. they seem to be two different people. Yes. And, and this is the impression that I got when I was growing up, just some sort of a glancing blow with evangelical fundamentalism. But Jesus' father was angry and he was mad because he was really holy and he made this garden. And he put the people in it and they disobeyed him and that made him furious. And then they just, then people disobeyed him anymore. So he killed everybody in the whole world in a flood. Yep. And then he made, then he called together a group of people that were supposed to be his representatives, his Jewish people, hmm. but then they never got it right. And he was always mad at them. And then he was so finally, he had to send his son to unleash all of his fury on and put him on the cross. And and unleashed all of this wrath, all of this pent up anger. Nobody ever gets it right. Nobody ever does what they're supposed to do. And so finally just lets all of that rage and fury, he just pours it out on his son. And then the preacher says, so the good news is that if you will accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, 
then all of that wrath that God has poured out on his son, he won't have to pour out on you. Yeah. If you can, and, and then, so all you have to do is, well, then it, it, it all you have to do is, is, you know, at that point, raise your hand, accept him as your Lord and savior, and then you're saved. Uh, and, but of course we expect to see you back here next, you know, right. next Sunday. And, um, and, you know, you're going to needing to do the discipleship. And um, uh, of course there some probably some more things you should be doing, and there's there's some things that you sh- absolutely should not do. Boy, that we've got we've got kind of a list of things that you shouldn't do. Uh, yes. But then it becomes this giant yep. sort of thing Formula. that you can't figure out whether or yeah. not you've ever fulfilled or not. And then they say, well, it's once saved, always saved. But then if somebody falls away, then they'll say, well, they were never really saved in the first place. <laughs> you know, so yeah, you know, you never really know if you've if you've made it or not, but, and over the, over, over the top of all of that is this really, really, really angry father figure. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that was the thing that, so it, Jesus, Jesus was loving. I wasn't so sure about his father, mm-hmm. at least the way they presented it to me. He was only once I really, it was only once I began to be able to be confident that the same love that I was seeing in Jesus was actually the same love as the father. If I could put those two together, yeah, that would work out. And, and what Christian universalism or that theology, universal reconciliation, whatever you want to call it, finally allowed me to say that, that there is nothing different between the love of Jesus for people and the love of God the love of the father it's all perfect pure it's all perfect pure love and once i got that view then other views of images of god like the parable of the prodigal son the the image of 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 the father who loves his enemies uh like in the sermon on the mount the reason we're supposed to love our enemies is because your father in heaven does the same thing so this this God of perfect love started coming into view. Once all of that happened, then I started to be able to put everything together. Another brilliant uh, exchange there. And I love that because there has been such a debate amongst the genocidal God of Joshua, right? Coming through and wiping people out. And there's been so many debates about with Copain and of other others, well, this isn't really what happens, or it wasn't as bad as it as it was. And I, I think that just misses the point. All the nuances. I mean, Stephen summed it up pretty good in Acts chapter seven, right? When he's before the council and he kind of looked back in time and uh and he saw God right there, right? And that's why they stoned him. But um, I wanted to ask more of a practical, maybe it's a little bit more of a downer question because you just eloquently described that. But going back to the, the D- David Hansen, let's say you truly oh, believe in universalism. Oh, Evan, dear Evan Hansen. Oh, yeah, dear, dear Evan Hansen. Yeah. yeah. Let's say I'm, I'm being on the traditionalist sense of here, not on the universalist side. Let's say you are universalist. Why not just kill yourself? Because you're not going to probably, you're not going to hell for sure, but maybe maybe you are in, in an iteration or two. But um, why, what's the argument against killing yourself if of the universalist approach is real? Well, um, well, first of all, I've never heard of anybody who embraces Christian universalism and then commits suicide. Now, I have heard of a lot of people who've committed suicide on the other side. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's so simply true. <laughs> that's that ridiculous. Is absolutely true. 
Yes. Yeah. Usually what happens is when people really get the idea that God is love and infinite beauty and goodness, and they start to get the idea that the good news is that the kingdom of God is now here, what happens is such a feeling of love and hope and generosity and goodness fills their soul. And suddenly they look out at the world and it starts shining in all kinds of ways they never saw it before. And they look at themselves and they see the goodness in themselves that they never saw before. And they feel alive and they feel good. And then they start to think things like, well, what I want to do now is I want to live my most fullest life of love that I possibly can and share that with others and experience the kingdom of God now and do what it is, whatever it is that God has for me to do to show forth God's pure and unconditional love towards others and towards of all creation. Well, then that's what I'm about now. And that's what I want to do. Well, all of that immediately makes the person fully alive. And the last thing that they're wanting to think about in that moment is commit suicide, which is mm-hmm. the opposite, you know, which is, which to me, suicide is despair. Okay. People yes. that are full of life and hope and joy don't have despair. And so they don't commit. As a matter of fact, they become super resilient. They be, they become the last person who is going to commit suicide because in in each and every situation, they are still believing that God is present, that they are in a creation that's on its way towards deification, that, that God's goodness and mercy will finally show through in everything. And so they start to look at every, every opportunity in life as, a, as another way to enter more deeply into that experience. Uh, so it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. You just mentioned the word deification, and I saw something recently that blew my mind where Athanasius is attributed that word to us because people are like, wait a minute, Athanasius contramundum, he's the guy who took out, you know, Arius, right, in terms of the the heresy that was going on and said, homo, hom, it's homoousios, not homoousios, right? And just so you know, um, Jonathan, um, Athanasius was, was an amazing, uh, he was a bishop, he was an early church father that basically, if you remember the council of, was it the council of Nicaea, um, David? Go ahead. I'm going to, I'll let you, I'm not yeah. an expert on the early church fathers. So, but you did claim that Athanasius in your book was a, was a universalist. Well, what I did was I quoted Robin Perry in his, in his book, uh, the evangelical universalist. He gives a list of early church fathers that are, universalist or were arguably universalist. And sometimes what would happen is that an early church father would say something, they're quoted and they say something that's so amazingly full of grace and so hopeful that's like, hey, if you think about that, that certainly would, that certainly would lead you to a universal reconciliation. They may not have ever, like said, I believe in a universal reconciliation, but they would say things that were so that 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 pointed so strongly in that direction, kind of like Karl Barth. You know, he would argue things that he would say things that were so profound and so beautiful, you know, it would sort of lead you in that direction. And I guess the early church scholar that I depend on the most is Alaria Ramelli. And uh, her book, there's a short version of her larger book on apocatastasis is called uh uh I think um what is Alaria Ramelli's book called? Dare we hope? No, it's um. Let me look. 
but she's the one who does the the most work on um, early church fathers and the debate. Uh, it's called A Larger Hope, Universal Salvation from Christian Beginnings to Julian of Norwich, A Larger Hope by Ilaria Ramelli. And that you have the same problem with early church fathers that sometimes you have in the New Testament because you take an early church father writing in Greek, sometimes the way he's translated into English, you like you, you can miss some of the nuances of their language. But anyway, there's a lot of early church fathers that were either, or there's early examples of early church fathers that were sort of clearly universalist or said things that were very sympathetic to that kind of conclusion. I think I'd put Athanasius in that camp. Yeah. He, he, he was attributed to the, uh, he was attributed to be saying was made man so that we might be made God. And yeah, it was what did Athanasius mean when he used the word theopoi, whatever that means to make God or to make divine. And I think in, 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 in going down that path, it was for Arius, Jesus becomes God only in the way that every saint may be deified. So what I was getting at is, is that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, as we look for this eternal reconciliation, what God is really trying to do is bring us into his oneness. Is that not, is that not a fair statement? Is he wanting us to be fully reconciled to him, not just in terms of this kind of top down, but more in terms of ontology? What do you think about that? Well, I just, I just finished one of my latest podcast episodes was with Jordan Daniel Wood, and we were going over the theology of Maximus Confessor. Okay. And Maximus Confessor, he was the one who really, uh, he really teased out all the implications of the incarnation mm-hmm. and what, what, and, and it sort of builds off this idea that God in assuming God assumes human form, that human form might assume God. So it was, and it was about the, that, that the purpose, that the goal of God is not just salvation, but ultimately deification. And, and as far as Maximus was concerned of all of creation, it seems like uh, there's a little bit of a debate about that, but the idea in, in in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the definition of salvation is along the lines of theosis, is that the mm. ultimately union with God. It's not just forgiveness of sin; it's union with God, which is salvation. So, you know, David, what does idea, that mean to you? What is what? that word? That distinction of union. Well, I think I like the idea. I, I like Trinitarian theology. I like the idea that. God is a is a complex being is a uni, unified being with a complex inner life that has a that is a joyful um, sort of a reciprocity between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and that that joyful reciprocity which exists in God between Father, Son, and Spirit is so satisfying and so wonderful that what's happening is God is essentially inviting us into that relationship. And so I guess the way I think about it is that ultimately we will all experience together that unhindered joyful relationship that father, son, and spirit. I mean, it, if you just think about it, it's like a family, it would be just like a family. That's all that, that they all understand and love and fully enjoy each other. So that, that the ultimate purpose of God is a really is a union where we are all together experiencing and loving and having a joyful harmony with each other. And in Ephesians 1.10, um, uh, there's the idea that all of creation, it 
sometimes it gets translated in English will be summed up in Christ or, but the word um, is um, that the, that the word really means that all of creation will be recapitulated in Christ, that, that humanity together will finally be a single body with Christ as the head. So there's this incredible, um, uh, Anna, uh, I can't think of the, the exact Greek word now. It's in Ephesians 1.10. Um, Anna kephalia sosthi, I think it is. But the, that, the, that the all of creation will be summed up. There will be a single body so that there is this union. There's this, so that when, when we think about, when I think about what we're all headed towards, it's not that just, oh, you'll be there and you'll be there and you'll be there and you'll be there. It's that there will be some kind of essential connection between each of us that we don't even understand right now, but that will be some kind of beautiful, super fulfilling harmony that will uh, be endlessly joyful. A unified field of consciousness, but love, not just awareness, but love, right? And, and bliss and, and communion. Yeah. Yeah, Gregory of Nyssa had an idea, a Greek word he used called epictasis, which is a sense of stretching or unfolding. And he had the idea that since God was infinite, that there could be an infinite, an infinite expansion into the, into the enjoyment and ever-increasing awareness of, of the depth of who God really is. So that that would not be like a static thing, but a, an ever, ever joyful, ever-increasing, ever-satisfying uh, eternal existence. So this is how I think the first church grew rapidly. Christianity, fact, it's the number one vein in all of history. It's the strongest. How did it grow so fast? Because here's what I think happened is they find the disciples and especially the women, I think the women got it better than the disciples, fundamentally understood you were in. You were in the kingdom of God. So everybody they approached, they didn't have to figure if you were in or out or not. You were just in. So you were part of the family. You were loved. And that is ridiculously good news, especially in an apocalyptic world. Yeah. 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 The early, I, I, I tell people that if you're concerned that I'm a liberal, hmm. Maybe you might think of me as a conservative in the sense that what I'm trying to do is conserve something that was available in the early centuries of the Christian experience, but doesn't seem to be very available right now. So I'm trying to just conserve something that we used to have. And another way I put it is that, you know, in your Christianity, um, or, or like, like I use a, a golf example. Like for instance, let's say you're, you're you're trying to play golf, and and I tell you about this club that's this amazing club, and will really help your game, and, but you didn't know that you could have it. Well, wouldn't it be good to have this club in our bag again? Like we used to have this club in our bag, right? Why don't we put this club back in our bag? Because somebody comes up to you and they say, "Listen, I'd be a Christian, but I just don't know that I can believe that in a God who puts people in hell forever or something like that." Yes, and you might you might say to them. Even if, let's suppose you're not a universalist, you could say to them, well, you know, for reasons of free will and things like that, it may be that God is not able to finally save everybody. But if it's important for you to be a Christian, if being, if, if you could be a Christian, if you could believe that God would finally save everybody, well, then there's a lane for that. It's called Christian universalism. And 
you can be in that lane for your whole Christian life. And there's some other really neat people that were in there. Gregory of Nyssa, he's in there. The church called him the father of the fathers at one point. There's some other really great early church figures or some other modern theologians and modern ministers that are in, you know, and just regular church people. You're not alone. I mean, this is the lane that's available for you. Why not be able to just tell people? It seemed like even if that's another thing I'm kind of hoping is that is that people will encounter my book and they'll say, um, and they'll meet somebody. So maybe they're not convinced or persuaded, you know, to come to my position, but they'll say, but it does seem to be Christian. And if I run into somebody who can't be a Christian because of the hell thing, I can at least point them in this direction. And maybe that could be something that could, that could give them an an entree. And when I think about it, it's not just into being a Christian, but it's an entree into having Jesus in their life and the goodness and love and that, that kind of, that kind of hope. And I want to reiterate what most of my evangelical friends, this is a projection onto my own history. So it's not me onto someone else is you're forgetting about God's justice. That's the Calvinistic side. It's this, You've got to have the justice, that right punch that's tough love and says, wake up. And it's important that what you're doing is you're saying, oh, we're not forgetting about that. It's just looks restorative rather than destructive. Right. And I call it, yeah, yeah, it's restorative justice rather than retributive. Absolutely. Yeah. that That a justice that's retributive that has no interest in restoration is finally not loving. And so- one of the things that we have to be able to say in order for our theology to make sense is that God is love. So God's love has to be a justice that is not finally at odds with God's justice cannot finally be at odds with God's love. Yeah. Cause grace saves all doesn't mean everybody gets away with it. Right. It nobody mean means that. nobody gets away with anything. Exactly. Correct. Right. That, that, and it's that's the what fullest people reflection do. of that. That, that's the argument for half of ha, half of the the arguments against it. It's like no, you you're missing that point. We need to have a better discussion, right? Yes. And it's like the, the the father, the loving parent, is such a great example because every time we punish our children for something that is going to hurt them, you know, you know, or do something, we're trying to correct them to the right path, right? Because we we know when there's complete free license that there's no and there's no options and there's no boundaries or guidelines then then a lot of pain and suffering could happen now sometimes it's good to let them let that happen on on their own like the prodigal son right i think that's what god does god says go play and we get in a lot of trouble yeah one time things up i remember one time uh, when i was in high school um i mean i just turned 18 or something like that and uh i wanted to smoke some cigarettes and my dad said okay smoke as many as you want and I smoked myself sick, you know, but, it, but it, he didn't make it like this thing, like, right. you know, it has its own, you know, it has its own built-in, it has its own built-in consequences. Uh, when I was experience 13 years them. old, I had the exact same experience. I went to a wedding and my parents let me drink, not knowing I was doing it, but they didn't shame me about it. I did it because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't drink till I was 19 because of that. I mean, I think I was age aware, but it consequence works. 
when right. you allow it to happen. It's more of the hover parents that miss out on you're keeping your kids from a really good learning tool in life, you know? And yeah, so that God allows us to have those experiences. And I think that explains why, you know, that, that, that there is so much, uh, terrible, so many terrible things that happen is that God, God is, uh, really allows us to do evil to really discover yes. what that does in our lives. And another thing that, that, but to me, then that, that, that means that God has to find a way of ultimately restoring those who are harmed by the evil that God allows in God's creation. And that, so when somebody does evil, the person who, who is, who is the victim they are harmed, but the person who does evil is harmed too. Their soul is harmed. So it just, to me, the the whole thing creates a situation which demands an ultimate restoration if God is good. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of love is love says, I will let you go lock yourself in a cabinet and the keys on the inside as long as you need to, to realize I still love you. Mm. Because that's that's yeah. what God does. God has an infinite amount of time and can be patient. And we go, why is there so much? It is. It's always the theodicy. Why does God allow suffering? Because God suffering is restorative, ultimately. It's yeah, ultimately if restorative. Yes, if, if suffering isn't restorative, then God isn't good and the creation is yes. not good. Yes. And then... Um, I think that leads to all kinds of other, uh, I think that leads to all kinds of other bad. Well, we, the old problems. argument hamstrings God because it says, God, why do you allow suffering? Because it's, that's that responsibility side saying tough love, come on, wake up. And God's like, no, you are capable of working through this. Love believes, hopes, endures. Says, I'm going to sit with you. I'm yeah. not going to run. I'm right outside this door, but you got to unlock yeah. the key from the inside. Well, the whole thing about all of this is so, I mean, you can do all the theological and philosophical arguments, but when you get down to it, the whole thing just becomes, you know, very simple that no good parent would put a child in an unrecoverable situation and no right. good parent in disciplining a child would kill them. Um, yeah. So if we just expand that and to say that God and God's creation never puts his uh, never puts his children in an unrecoverable position and uh, never disciplines them for the point of des destroying them but always for the point of restoration i mean to me that's just an obvious uh, description of what love is and what good parents do but the problem is that that because of the tradition that developed in western christendom um with that doctrine of eternal conscious torment or eternal separation of hell built into it, it frustrated the picture of God. And then ironically, the job of theology was doing kind of all these theological and hermeneutical gymnastics to try to explain how it could be that God makes a creation in which people are doomed to these terrible outcomes, but yet God is still good. And, you know, that has consumed a lot of the intellectual prowess of Christianity, Western Christianity. So I'm glad that what, what's happening now is some of the brightest minds, like I would say, I really love David Bentley Hart's work, but is showing just how powerful, how cohesive, how biblically persuasive, philosophically persuasive, like David Bentley Hart and 
like Thomas Talbot, the kind of work that they have done, uh, just how powerful that is. And it makes such a wonderfully coherent, philosophically, theologically, biblically, traditionally, historically satisfying argument. I think once you encounter it, that it's incredibly persuasive. And my book was just an attempt to kind of make a stepping stone for people to get into the conversation and to and to be able to really to go further and to see what, what wonderful further resources and scholarship that's actually out there for them. You know, that's actually a great way for us to end because um, I, uh, I, I think your work is the most accessible. Yes. That's why it's elegant to me is because it's simple to understand, whereas David's work, David is going for the hardcore theologians that are really having those really esoteric conversations. And yeah, David Bentley great Hart. Topics. Yeah. Yours is incredible. Uh, yeah, David uh, Bentley Hart. It's yeah. yours is accessible to the average person. And that's right. what and, I love about it. So yeah. the thing that was great about what David, Bentley, when, when David Bentley Hart put out that all shall be saved, that means now that if you're doing any kind of graduate theological studies, yes, whether it's a seminary or just, you know, wherever you are, if you're getting a, like a master's in theology or you're doing graduate theology work or you're doing a seminary, you're probably going to have to read that all shall be saved. It's, it's that level of, it's, it's that level of scholarship. And I couldn't do that. I, I actually could not, I didn't have the PhD. I, I couldn't do that. But what I can do is build a bridge for people to to be able to get into the conversation and to and then to stand there and and from the my book to say well and if you've gotten this far with me look at this look at this look at this look at this and then so what's been really a lot of fun is all those people that i quoted in my book that are still alive at this point i've pretty much been able to do interviews with all of them now of course i was able to make the book kind of come alive at the at the at the at the scholarly depth by having interviews with people. And then along the way, I've met other ministers and um, like somebody like a Brian Zond. I really enjoy him and his journey. He's sort of self-taught. He's a you know minister, but self-taught as far as, uh, as, far as his uh, ongoing theology. He is a liberal though, <laughs> but, but I love his stuff. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, it's interesting. To, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, it's funny to me. Brian Zond is such an evangelical I mean, from my point of view, that anybody would think of him as a liberal sounds funny to me. <laughs> and so it's always funny to me when somebody says that he's a, uh, um, that he's <laughs> that he's a liberal. He's gotten uh, involved politically in some statements on Instagram, and so, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you yeah. know, and I have, I have one of the things. Here's another thing I have kept out of on the podcast. I don't get into any other issues besides Christian universalism. That's it. You can have, you can have your own politics. You can have your own atonement theories. Uh, you can, you can be as, um, uh, what, whatever. You can be wherever you are on the theological spectrum. I, and that's why one reason I've done that is just I just want to stay focused on that, that one singular issue because I think a lot of the other issues are fear-driven kinds of things. But anyway, uh, and I, I, so in the. In through the in the in the interviews, I can uh, I can let people meet all kinds of different people from across the kind of the spectrum who've come to this point of view. 
David, what's the name of your podcast? Grace Saves All yep. is the name of the podcast. The subtitle of the podcast is Christianity and Universal Salvation. And it's on... Uh, is it on all the platforms? Yeah, it's on all awesome. the platforms. Uh, you can also, if you don't, if you don't go to podcast apps or whatever, I have my website is davidartman.net. So you go to davidartman.net and there's a, um, a page that says podcast. If you click on the podcast page, all the episodes are right there and you can listen to any of the podcast episodes just right at davidartman.net. Or you can just, if you just go, uh, if you just Google uh, Christian Universalism podcast, it'll, my podcast comes up. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. I think people, anybody that's looking for Christian Universalism, more information about it, they seem to be finding my podcast pretty quickly. That's awesome. awesome. David, we have to cut short or we have to, I, I, we would love to do this <laughs> with you again. So please Let's come do back. it. Absolutely. Yeah. We will schedule another time with you because I think we could, these, because here's the thing that I love about our conversation so far is it's very human and I wanted to keep it there. And I think we did a good job of saying, this isn't just theology. This is about our own personal journey with God and how our image of God affects us. And you've done such an amazing job of bringing the conversation down to an accessible level. So thank you very much for that. I really appreciate that. Well, you're, you're welcome. And I don't, you, you can think about this, but this is, you guys have an invitation to join me on the Grace Saves All podcast. Uh, I know that Jonathan, you seem, Jonathan, you seem more, you seem more convinced. Richard, you're still working. Seems like you're still He's working. Hopeful, things. He's hopeful. I, I'm, 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 I'm just about there every now and then. And this is kind of silly. I get to a point where I see something, something. So I think insurmountable. I, I, whether it's the the whole pedophile and, and and human trafficking and and some people just getting involved, I'm I'm still trying to overcome that weight. However, you know more and more. So what, I, there's an interesting story. Um, this might not make any sense at all, but I'm getting to a place where I I want the best for everybody, regardless of of how it first affected me. So I I do ice baths, uh, David, and I spend 150 dollars on an ice bath maybe 200 bucks. And I'm, I'm liking it. And I've told lots of people about it and how amazing it is for therapy, right? For inflammation and for stretching. Right. And Jonathan says, well, Rich, I think I saw him on uh, Alibaba for like uh, 50 bucks. So, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And then in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, I got hosed and I, I'm, you know, not, you know, I, I didn't get the best deal. And in the back of my mind, I said, you know what, if everybody takes advantage of ice baths and they're getting healthier and they're feeling better, why not? I should be happy. Everybody use an ice bath. Right. And so I think <laughs> God's working in me in a little way of saying, you know what, even though I see these dark kind of patches of things, um, if I really look at the big picture, you know, it's, it's, it's there, you know what I mean? I have the perfect, okay. I have the perfect thought for us to discuss on your podcast, David, which is, it is very hard to change theologically, po theological positions that are deeply entrenched. Mm -hmm. We're working against a biological construct at that point. It's yeah. now nested in our body. And I think that's the conversion moment. I, I would love to dive deep into that with you. Yeah. And, and that's another thing, another sort of category of folks that I have on the podcast is people, since I didn't grow up in the evangelical 
world. So I don't, I don't have that. I don't have that experience. So sometimes what I do is I like to bring people on who grow up, grew up in the evangelical world. And, and that way, evangelicals that are listening to it can hear somebody who had their, who had their real, who had their experience. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, you know, that that's, that's helpful. That's, I, I don't need to pretend to have or understand an experience that I didn't have, but I can bring people on to, uh, to talk about that. So we'll, you guys will definitely get an invitation to, to be on the Grace Saves All podcast. Let's do it. I'm totally in. Okay. So um, I just want to say to all of our listeners, this has been one of my absolute favorite episodes of all time. I have loved this conversation. Uh, please uh, review and subscribe. And uh, Rich, any final words? Just wanted to um, express my gratitude um, for David and the work you've done. Um, we've talked about the accessibility, but at the same time, it, it's 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 about hope, and it's about um, you know we're living in dark times, you know, and we need more hope. We need more light to be shined. And uh, I've been just absolutely thrilled to be part of this conversation, David. Thank thank you so much. Well, David, any a, final I, words? Well, I just think that this is the kind of conversation that we are having right now. I think is the kind of conversation I call it the parking lot conversation. This is what people talk about, like. You're, you know, you're outside of church yep. or maybe you're at the coffee shop or something. It's like, well, what do you think about this? What about this Christian universalism? I mean, do you think it has any legs, you know? And, and I think this is the, you know, the coming big conversation that a lot of people are going to be having. And, and just like the three of us have been talking about this, mm -hmm. I think there's just a lot of people that are having this conversation all over the place in, in one form or another. And I think that it is the conversation that we need to be having. Absolutely. Amen. Much love, everyone. Have a uh, great week. We love you. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye.